You know, one of the things I love so much about the teachings of Jesus is, is really that thought right there, is that the teachings of Jesus should inspire us. You know, there's not a whole lot of things in life that probably inspire us like the teachings of Jesus do. I mean, I've been inspired throughout my life different times. I've sat underneath different coaches that would give me inspiring speeches. I've sat underneath pastors that have um, given inspiring sermons. I've sat in moments where I've heard inspiring testimonies from people. But yet, when you look at the teachings of Jesus, you can't help but walk away being inspired. If you've been inspired by the teachings of Jesus in your life, would you just just give me a little whoop whoop? All right, come on now. The nine o'clock gathering is ready and going here. Man, that was good. I was not expecting that much of a whoop whoop. <laughs> but you guys gave it. You know, the word inspired by definition would be outstanding or brilliant in a way or to a degree suggestive of divine inspiration. Think about that for a minute, divine inspiration in your life. When you have an encounter with Jesus, you're inspired because of a divine inspiration, a divine moment. Just the whole idea and concept of, of Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth is a divine moment that actually impacts not only your life, but it has impacted everyone's life ahead of you and everyone's who will come after you. It's a divine inspiration. If you were to dig a little bit further and just look at the word inspire, you would see that the word inspire is to influence or move or guide, to spur on, to infuse, to draw forth or to bring out, to spread by indirect means through an agency of another. Can I challenge you with one thought this morning, and that is this, is that the only way you can ever inspire somebody with things that will last is to inspire them with the teachings of Jesus. Because see, things will come and go. Like I, I remember when I first joined Twitter. Come on now. Do you guys know what Twitter is? Some of you are like, is that like Facebook? Not really. But... Um, I remember when I first joined it, and I remember how inspired I was because what was happening was all these people I was following, they began putting all these inspiring quotes out there in 120 characters or less. That's the whole point of Twitter is that it's 120 characters or less. You put it out there, and people begin to, to, to uh, share different leadership principles. They'll share a scripture verse. And I was so inspired by reading those different things. Now, Twitter kind of has kind of gone off a little bit. Now we just post everything on Facebook and we watch stupid, silly videos all day long on our phones. But there's something about being inspired by quotes and inspired by leadership moments, inspired by things that are around us. If you've ever been out in, into uh, Colorado, I, I would say this, the mountains inspire you when you're out there. If you've ever been on the beach and, and, and you've been here in Michigan along, um, you know, the Great Lakes, the Great Lakes should inspire you. There are things in life that should inspire you. What's interesting about the things that really do inspire us is that they were created by God himself. Things that don't inspire us too much or, or that don't have a lasting inspiration are normally things that we create. Just think about that for a minute. They come and they go. Can I, can I just share this with you this morning? Th this thought... I love Jesus. <laughs> like, like, I just love Jesus. This week I was really thinking about that. Man, I just, I love Jesus. Like, he is such a good God. He is such a good Father. Like, Jesus is like everything to me in my life. And even when I fall down and even when I make mistakes, he's always there reaching out and saying, Brian, it's all right, come on. And so many times when I think I have to have it all together, when I think like I have to earn his love, he always reminds me of this one simple thing. Brian, you don't have to earn my love. It's already been freely given. Because sometimes we fall into this old pattern. We think that, oh, this week I messed up, and so this week I have to now earn God's love. No, no, God's love is not anything you earn. It is something that has been freely given to you. 
And when I think about Christ, I think about how he has inspired my life. Now, in those moments of inspiration, he has, it's caused things to be different. I think differently. I share differently. I, I love differently. I, I dream differently. I, I, I submit differently. I bless differently. I, I, um, I pray differently. I receive differently. I follow differently. I walk differently. I submit differently. I live differently because I'm inspired by the teachings of Jesus because my life has been changed because of those teachings. Come on. If your life has been changed because of the teachings of Jesus, come on, give me another. <laughs> because here's the thing that we have to understand is this, is that Jesus is alive. He's not dead in a grave. Come on, I need to say it again. Jesus is alive. And his teachings are things that apply to our lives. His word that has been given to us, the scriptures, is something that is alive, it's active, it's a part of our lives. And, and his life inspires us. It inspires us to be different. It challenges us. As he loves us, even in our brokenness, it challenges us to love others even in their brokenness last week I was challenging you with this idea and thought of loving God with all of your heart with all of your mind with all of your soul with all of your strength the idea of loving others as yourself loving people and then loving life loving the life that God has given you my question is is what did you do this last week to love who did you love how did you love the life that God has given you who did you share that love with? Who were you sharing that love with others around you? Because when Jesus came, he came to teach. He came to love. He came to redeem. He came to save. And in him is found new life. We started soaping today in John. Sorry that we kind of left you at the end of Samuel. You know, we, we've been going through Samuel, and we get to, you know, Samuel chapter 15. And then at the end of it, it says, uh, basically, the end of the scripture that we ended with today or yesterday was this, is that the Lord was unhappy that he had made kings or that he had made Saul king. And that's how we left it. <laughs> and now we're into John. <laughs> and we started soaping in John. And I, I love uh, how John starts. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Think about that for a minute this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It goes on to say, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made. That was made in Him was life, and the life of the light of man, the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Think about that. God has given us His Word, the Word... He is the Word. <laughs> he is the light. He is the one who shines into the darkness. And we're going to be looking at here throughout the book of John as we begin uh, soaping here. We're going to be looking at the life of Christ. We're going to be looking at His life and ministry. And we're going to be inspired by the words that will be jumping off of the pages. And the reason why I believe the words will jump off the pages is because I believe if you will ask God to illuminate his word, that he will do that. Now listen, if you just treat it like it's some other book sitting on a shelf somewhere, it will be just some other book sitting on a shelf. But if you will ask the Lord to illuminate his word inside of you, if you will say, God, your word is alive, it's active. Your word is, is a part of who you are. I want to learn from you. I want to sit at your feet this week. I want to sit at your feet today. I want to learn through John the Baptist. I want to learn through the disciples. I want to learn through your life. If you'll sit back at his feet and ask him, guess what he will do? He will show himself to you. And what will happen is, is, at the end of this time of soaping, you will walk away with a greater and deeper understanding of who Jesus is. And I promise you this, you will be inspired. Because the life of Christ is inspiring. The thing I love so much about the Word of God is this, is it's 66 books. 66 books, 27 in the New Testament, 39 in the Old Testament. 
And when we begin digging into that, what we begin seeing is the Word of God is alive. It's active. It's not just some ancient book. It's something that we apply to our lives even today. They say over 5 billion in print. 5 billion of the Word of God in print. No other book has been printed as much and distributed as much as the Word of God. Here's a name, though. Do you know who Stephen Langton is? Stephen Langton. It's interesting because Stephen Langton, um, back in the 12th century, actually began reading God's Word and, and realized that God's Word was hard to really begin to uh, grab a hold of when they were sharing it among uh, different priests and among others. They were having a hard time being able to say, hey, you know, this is where I saw this in the Word of God. And so Stephen uh, Langton was actually the one who decided that the Scriptures should be divided into chapters. Yeah, some of you, maybe you don't know, but the scriptures did not originally start with chapters. It was actually brought about in the 12th century, and there's a reason why I'm telling you this here in a moment, because sometimes I think when we read God's word, yes, the chapters are great, but sometimes we're like, oh, the chapter's done, that must mean the thought is done. But that's not the case. The chapters were given simply for reference. So I've, I've heard people say things like, well, you know, that chapter has this many words inside of it, and that many numbers actually means this biblical thing and this and that. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. don't get all wacky on me. Listen, Stephen Langton decided to put it into chapters so that people could better read God's Word and could have a common talking point. So it started with chapters. 1,189 chapters to be exact. Robert Einstein. Robert Einstein is the one who later, actually in 1551, came up with the idea of like, well, it's great that they're in chapters, but it's still hard to be able to decide. And so Robert Einstein actually decided we need to put verses in. And so 31,102 verses later, he actually divided up. What is the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. Who decided what the shortest verse in the Bible would be? Robert Einstein. I know I just messed with some of your theology right now because some of you are like, what well, I thought. Well, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> yeah. 783,137 words in the King James Version. Now, you may sit there and read that and think about all those things and say, but I thought this was divinely inspired. I thought the Word of God was living and active. Yes, the Word of God is living. It's active. Just because someone put it in chapter and verse does not mean that it's still not living and active. All it does is it means that for you and I, someone has helped us study the Word of God. Now, there's another thing that comes into play. It's called the red letters. Now, there's this thing called rubrication, and rubrication is actually this. It's, uh, they were called rubricators, and what, the reason why they were called rubricators is because they specialized as scribes who actually received texts from various manuscripts, and their job was to go in and to actually add red to certain parts of the text to emphasize certain words throughout the text. The term rubrication comes from the Latin rubico, which actually means this, to color red. Throughout the Gospels of what we'll be spending a lot of time these next few weeks in is this, is we'll see the words of Jesus actually written in red. It goes back to 1899 when Louis Kloppish published the first modern red-letter edition of the New Testament. Basically, what happens if you go and study a little bit of his story, he was sitting there and he had this thought, what if we took the words of Jesus that are found inside of the scriptures and what if we signified them as different than the regular text and actually made them red? What would happen then if somebody actually began reading through and saw, oh, those are the words of Jesus versus those are just the words in the scripture? What would happen? And he had this thought. He shared it with someone else and that person said, I think you should do something like that. 
And so actually the year before that, he began working on that and began uh, putting all that together, and then he published his first modern manuscript of that in 1899. See, the Word of God is something that should inspire us to dig deeper. It should inspire us to study it. It should inspire us to want to go a little bit further. There's one passage of Scripture that really is one of the longest recorded uh, moments where Jesus is sharing. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 5. The next few weeks, we're going to be digging into Matthew chapter 5 and really looking at this whole idea of the red letters, this idea of being inspired by the red letters of Christ, his teaching. Now Jesus delivers this message, uh, this passage of scripture here known as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, along a road that skirts the Sea of Galilee. And uh, it's interesting because as you dig a little bit deeper into this, what you'll find is that it's really not a mountain. I mean, we, we, we say Sermon on the Mount, we think, oh, it's got to be this big mountain or something like that. It's probably more like Sermon on the Hill. Sermon on the Bump. <laughs> it wasn't Sermon on the Mountain. And a lot of scholars would say, well, why would, why would people say, call it the Sermon on the Mount? And they would say this, it wasn't so much because of the physical location and the enormity of the physical location. It was because of the enormity of the words that Jesus delivers. You see, the words that Jesus delivers to us in Matthew chapter 5 has such significance that they're, they're a mountain-type place in our lives. If, if you and I would actually just look at the words of Jesus and allow them to inspire us, it would inspire change in your life. You would think differently. You would act differently. You would begin to respond differently to the circumstances that are around you. People will come to me all the time, and they'll talk about things that are falling apart in their life. And the one thing that I want to encourage you with is just keep going back to Jesus. Because if you're following Jesus' pattern and you're becoming more like Jesus, your life will not fall apart. I promise you. Your life will not fall apart. Why? Because he's a good, good father. Now, when you pull away from the teachings of Jesus, when you start trying to do things on your own, guess what will happen? Yeah, you'll get all messed up. Anyone ever been there before? I was telling someone last night, I said, you know what? There's a reason why we gather together in church. It isn't just so that we can mark off the box and say, ah, got to church this week. It's because there is something said about assembling with the saints together. There's something about worshiping corporately together. Come on, there's something about a moment where we get to sit here and take in God's word together that should be playing out throughout the week. See, our whole group's strategy here at Bethany is this, is that we talk about what we're soaping and what the message is on the weekend. We don't have all these different groups that are going on. You know, Beth Moore study over here, Andy Stanley study over here, you know, Keller study over here. We don't have all those different things. You know why? Because we want people just to engage God's Word. Because if people will engage God's Word, you know what will happen? Life change. Do you believe it? I know some of you have been serving Jesus a long time, but I have a question. Do you really believe it? Do you believe that God's Word has the power to change your life even today? Do you believe that when you dig into God's Word that He'll show you something anew and afresh once again? And that's what we read here in Matthew chapter 5 is a moment where Jesus is delivering a thought to them who are around Him. There's probably Pharisees gathered around. There's other disciples that are gathered around. People are gathered around to hear from Jesus as He's going to begin teaching. He's going to deliver what has become known really in many ways as the kingdom manifesto. It's this idea of the kingdom of earth and God bringing the kingdom of earth here. Beginning in the Beatitudes, we see Jesus introducing this new and radical philosophy that really is something that's going to shift everyone's thinking because he's saying, listen, your heavenly Father desires to have a personal relationship with you. And that can change everything because up until this time, it's all been about rules. It's been about do's and don'ts. It's been about you got you to you sacrifice on this day and the priest will do this for you and, and all these different things that had to fall right into place. And Jesus was coming in and saying, listen, faith is no longer a legalistic code 
that's about restricted behavior. What Jesus comes in is he says, I am actually a living covenant that actually promises a blessing to your life. You see, the Beatitudes stands for this. It, it means happy or fortunate. And the concepts that we're getting ready to read here in these first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5 um, are still stand in many ways in deep contrast to what the world says right now. You, you'll notice as we read through them, the world is saying the complete opposite of what Jesus is saying. Now let me challenge you with this thought, be inspired by the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now you may be sitting there, Pastor Brian, I thought you just told me it wasn't a mountain. Listen, all I'm saying is what the scholars have said. But you may say, well, Pastor Brian, it says mountain there. Okay, well, let's remember this again. We're actually talking about an English translation of the Word of God. If we were to read it back in the original Hebrew and Greek, what am, what am I trying to show you? I'm trying to show you that you and I can trust God's Word, but there are going to be things inside of God's Word that sometimes aren't translated exactly how they were meant to be in there. And you may say, well, Pastor Brian, doesn't that mean it's all messed up? No, it doesn't. I'm trying to actually help you when someone else comes to you and says, well, it wasn't a mountain, it was just a mound. Oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah, sometimes uh, the translation there in the English, sometimes it gets, a, it gets a little bit, but listen, God's word is still God's word. God's word is still truth. God's word still changes lives. It says this, and he opened his mouth. Jesus opens his mouth and taught them saying this, blessed are the poor in the spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you revel you um, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were there before you a passage of scripture that's known as the Beatitudes a moment that says listen blessed are those who do this now when you look at that first one it says blessed are the poor in spirit you're like man I I don't want to be poor in spirit but here's what we see as we begin to dig into this passage of Scripture. What we see is Jesus really right off the bat giving us eight different characters who he's talking about. I love how Max Lucado in his book, The Applause of Heaven, says that he says, No man had more reason to be more miserable than Jesus. Yet the truth is, is no one was more joyful. He was ridiculed by those who ridiculed him. Those who didn't ridicule him wanted favors. He was accused of a crime that he never or committed. There was witnesses that were hired to lie. They crucified him. They left him to die. He should have been miserable and he should have been bitter. But yet he wasn't. He was actually joyful. Max Lucado goes on to say he possessed a joy that possessed him. He possessed a joy that possessed him. Max Lucado said, I, I call this the sacred delight. Sacred because it's not of the earth. Delight because it's just the joy of God. And he says this, and it's within reach of each and every person who knows Jesus. Can I challenge you with this thought today to be possessed with joy? To allow the presence of God to possess you, to allow the presence of God to, to take over the way you think, the way you respond. I mean, if you allow the presence of God to take over the way you think and the way you respond, you'll be much better off. Because see, when Brian Henley kicks in, 
And then I respond to my wife or respond to others, how Brian Henley would respond. Guess what? It's not good. Come on, some of you this morning, you're not even talking to your spouse right now because of the way they respond. You're like, I wish they were possessed with Jesus, but they were possessed with something else, and I was casting that out on the way in. He goes on to say this. He says, it is the sacred delight that Jesus promised in the Sermon on the Mount. He said he promised it to an unlikely cast of characters. Jesus makes incredible promises, but the eight characters that are mentioned are not individual people standing in line at a blessing blank waiting for the next teller. He says these eight characters are blessed. They provide a mental picture of the process through which God leads every believer as we experience new life that is found in Christ. So let's walk through them. Verse 3. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now for many of us, when we hear the word poor, we immediately think to finances. We think to the resources we have. We think, well, that's what he's referring to. But actually, what it's talking about, it's talking about the spiritual condition. Not, your, not a physical location, not not uh, your resources. He's talking about the spiritual condition, and that's why he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, poverty resulting from a lack of resources is not a virtue at all, any more great than any other thing that's out there. It doesn't ever give you entrance into, into the kingdom of God. It's not like you have to be poor in your resources and then you make it to heaven. No, the gift of God has actually been something that's been freely given to you and I. Poverty in spirit actually is recognizing the insufficiency that you and I have when it comes to actually knowing who God is. Listen, it is not anything you or I bring to the table. You are insufficient. You have poverty in your spirit, but it is the Spirit of God who draws you and the Spirit of God who changes your life and the Spirit of God who changes the way you think and the way you respond. And if you will allow the Spirit of God to change your life, then what will happen is, is you'll inherit the kingdom of heaven. The Bible clearly teaches that all have sin and fall short of God's holy standard. All of us. But this is what I love is the Bible also says that you are fearfully though and wonderfully made. That God knows every hair on your head. He knows every detail of who you are, every plan and purpose that he has laid out before you. And he loves you by divine choice. He chooses you. He chooses you. And he demonstrates his love for you by sending Christ to die for you. And no one can ever possess enough spiritual resources to actually take care of that poverty in spirit. But when you allow the presence of God to come over you, what does he do? He takes that poverty in spirit and makes it rich in the fullness of who Christ is. The next verse is this, is blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. The first character that we just read about was one who is poor in spirit. The next is, blessed are those who mourn. Now you may be sitting here and going, well mourning simply has to do with when we've lost something, when someone passes away, or, or when we lose a job, or, or we, we, we lose uh, in our marriage, something happens and, and there's a mourning that takes place. But see, what we have to understand is those who mourn recognize their needs and present them to the one who is actually able to assist. What Jesus is talking to us about is he's saying, listen, here is the next step in the process of receiving Christ. The first is, is you have to understand you're bankrupt without him. The second is, is you have to understand this, that upon gaining a further understanding of your sinful nature, you must actually repent, and you should be mourning in those moments. Because just as blessing and poverty of spirit seem odd together, this whole idea here of, is really this spot where Jesus brings all things together, and he says, listen, those who mourn actually shall be comforted. Mourning is grief that's expressed over a loss. And this expression is crucial in our faith. 
And I heard the story of a fourth grade Sunday school teacher who asked her class, what does repentance mean? One child said this, it means that you're sorry for something you did. That's a pretty good answer, right? You're sorry for something you did. Another child finally raises her hand and, and more accurately described it, though, and said this, it means you're sorry enough to quit. You see, I think some of us are still stuck at the first one. We recognize our need for a Savior, but we don't get to the mourning part. We're, we're not sorry enough to actually quit. We keep going back to patterns of sin, and we wonder why they keep bringing destruction. We, we keep searching things on the Internet. We, we keep engaging in conversations that we know we shouldn't be in. We, we wonder why our marriages are falling apart. We wonder why things are struggling around us, but yet we keep indulging in things around us, and we say this, well, I... I, I it's just who I am. It's just a part of me. God loves me. He forgives me. I've heard people say that all the time. Like, they'll, and, and I know we put it in joking circles and Christian circles, but can I just say it's not any joking thing. People will say, oh, it's not a big deal. If I sin, I'll just ask God to forgive me. There has to be a mourning that takes place. There has to be a moment where we mourn over our sin and express the appropriate sorrow that leads us to actually stop sinning. We stop sinning. We don't keep sinning. We stop sinning. Genuine grief expressed over our poverty and the way that we think actually begins to happen when we recognize God's forgiveness and that then cleanses our heart and that then begins to change who we are and all of a sudden you're no longer the same person you once were because you've been walking through a process. And Jesus mends our broken spirit. Think about this, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But verse 17 actually says this, For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You don't have to stay in your moments of grieving. You don't have to stay in your moments of condemnation. Why? Because Jesus actually paid the price. He doesn't want to like, beat you down with guilt. He actually wants to lift you up. But you have to be willing to mourn and to turn away from the sin and no longer be that way anymore. Romans 2, 4 says God's kindness is actually meant to lead us to what? To repentance. His kindness towards us actually should lead us to repent and should lead us to actually allowing a change to happen. And I'm not just talking about an outward change here. I'm not talking about just something that, you know, looks like, you know, all these home makeover shows like we see now today. I'm talking about allowing Jesus to get past the surface and get to the heart. To begin to do some remodeling on the inside and to begin to allow something deep inside of you to begin to change. Verse 5, the next character says this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now let me just say this real quick. We, may we never confuse meekness with weakness. See, sometimes we think that weakness, like meekness is actually being weak. Can I just say it's not? Those who are meek are actually very humble and gentle. It's funny because I've seen people who, who are very proud and prideful, and they struggle with those things. You know what they are the least? They are not meek at all. They're completely the opposite. And many times what happens, it's not until they get to a place of low place in their life that they actually realize, and sometimes they never see it. It's like they have these spiritual blinders on, and they think, no, if I'm not, if I'm not, you know, being proud, if I'm not, you know, standing my ground, if I'm not doing these things, then, then somehow that will show I'm weak. No, no, no. Humble and gentleness are the proper position that you and I need to be taking the Greek word rendered there as meek actually is translated in other spots as, as this is gentle. So think about this. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. When we look at even the identity of Christ, when, when we look at his, his um, personality, he actually identifies himself as meek. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, a few verses later. 
The disciples are actually terrified, though, and they actually say this in, in uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 41. It says that they're terrified because even the winds and the waves obey. Can I just say this? If he describes himself as meek, and yet the disciples are terrified of him because even the winds and the waves obey, can I just say there's actually strength that is found in meekness. Meekness is allowing the Almighty God to shape your life as a master designer. See, many people see submission as this idea of losing, but Jesus actually promises with it. He says this, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. They're going to inherit the whole earth. The Apostle Paul says it well. He says this in 2 Corinthians 6, 10. He says, having nothing yet possessing everything. He's like, I don't have, I have nothing, but yet I possess everything the next character we see is in verse 6 it says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be what what does it say satisfied boy there's a word right now in our culture that if we could get a hold of this thought satisfaction Satisfaction guaranteed, right? Like, isn't that what we're always saying? Like, you're, we guarantee your satisfaction. Can I just say, they'll always leave you empty. Nope, we're not done yet. Oh, okay. I just, I just, I, I thought you were giving me a timer, Cindy, right there. You're like, oh, it's done. No, I, I, it's, it's only, it's, it's only 10:05. I, we still got time. Look at her. Look, if, if you saw how red Cindy's face is right now. <laughs> you know what? We should hunger and thirst, and it should be this ongoing desire for us. The quest to know God is never completed on this side of heaven. Come on. Paul wrote it best in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was talking about this idea of, listen, I hunger, I thirst, I'm, I'm going after the Lord. I, I want more of God in these moments. Jesus makes this glorious promise to those who approach God with a hungry soul. He says, they will not die disappointed. No, 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 you will not be disappointed. You will actually be satisfied when you hunger and thirst. The next character we see Jesus talking about is blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I talked a little bit about this last week, how many times in the church we are anything but merciful. <laughs> in fact, in many ways, we're kind of the opposite of merciful. We're like, can't believe you, can't believe you did that, it's so wrong. And I'm not saying that we should say those things are right we should actually take stands with mercy because blessed are the merciful. See, the merciful extent of Jesus has actually been given to us and we should then in turn give that to others. Transformation into Christ's likeness is something that happens when we actually receive his mercy because, listen, you or I can't do anything to actually earn his grace, earn his mercy. No, he actually gives it to us. I'm convinced that some of the most defining characteristics of Jesus is not love. I wouldn't even say that it's, that it's uh, other words like patience and kindness. And, and you may say, Pastor Brian, I thought you said last week that love is the most important thing. Yes, I did say that. That's what he tells us. He says, loving God and love others. He says love. But if you look at the life of Christ, what he actually has done for you and I is this, is actually he is loved with forgiveness. Think about that. Apart with, with love without forgiveness doesn't mean a whole lot, does it? Because he can say he loves us all day long, but if we aren't forgiven, then our lives are not changed. If he didn't die upon the cross, then things don't change. So maybe today you're sitting here and you're like, man, I've been mistreated. Well, here's, here's the thing. If someone has mistreated you, you have one of two options. You can either get mad about it or you can actually give mercy. You can get hurt about it or you can actually give mercy. Do you know how many times I need mercy in my marriage? 
A lot. A lot. And you laugh and giggle because you know. I could get mad. Can't believe she did that. Can't believe this happened. Or I could just give mercy. One actually puts her more on the defensive, actually makes things actually worse. When I get mad, it does not help the situation. When I look at her, I'm like, girl, mm. She looks at me, she's like, boy. When we start going back and forth like that, that's not really how it happens, Gabe, no. But because my life has been forgiven by Christ, I actually possess the capacity to actually forgive others because of what Christ has done for me. I can give mercy. Hatred, bitterness, unresolved conflict, they're like a rabid disease running through your body, destroying. But forgiving, forgiving brings life. Forgiveness liberates you from pretending that you have to be the judge of all things living and dead. <laughs> Some of you need to get that. You are not the judge of all things living and dead. In fact, your job is not to judge any. It's his job. He'll judge. Not you. Not what you think. And you know what? I'm really glad that it's not what you or I think. Because if it was based upon what you or I think, we would all be messed up. None of us could do anything good enough. Max Lucado in his, that book, The Applause of Heaven, actually, he said this too. He said, unfaithfulness is wrong. Revenge is worse. But the worst part of all is that without forgiveness, bitterness is all that is left. Ooh. Unfaithfulness is wrong. Revenge is worse, but the worst part is without forgiveness, bitterness is all that's left. Next character in verse 8, blessed are the pure in the heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart are those who are inwardly clean from sin through faith in God's provision and continually acknowledging their heart before the Lord. That's why uh, Solomon warned in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 29, he said, above all else, he said, guard your heart. Why is he saying that? Because he's saying, listen, above all else, this heart, the heart that you have matters. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 15, verse 18 says, it's not what comes into the mouth that defiles you, but it's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. Purity is used all throughout the scriptures. We see it throughout the entire Old Testament where they had to purify things from the utensils to the animals to the priests. Everything had to be purified in order to be accepted into God's presence. What Jesus did is he purified our lives so that we can actually have communion with the Father. As Christ followers, you and I are blessed because the blood of Christ has purified us. And Jesus actually promises those who are pure will see God. Through purity, we'll actually have and gain a greater understanding of who God is. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. King David knew the importance of a clean heart. He said, clean, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing Spirit. The next one is this, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. See, listen, the peacemakers show others how to have an inward peace. You should be a peacemaker at your work. You should be a peacemaker on Facebook. What? I thought my job was to go out there and play the devil's advocate. No, you're not on that team. I hate that when people say that. It's like, I, I, I was just playing the devil's advocate. I was just trying to get other people to see the other side of it. No. The devil does not need you on his team. God needs you on his team. And he's called you to be a peacemaker. And he says, if you'll be a peacemaker, then you'll actually be called what? Sons 
of God. Throughout the scriptures, we see individuals being called sons of God. Now, here's the thing. In our culture today, we have a social security number. That's how people know, you know, kind of, that's part of your identity. You have a last name. I'm a, I'm a Henley. My boys are Henleys. Throughout the scriptures, to be recognized as God's son was one of the highest honors a person could ever have. In Eastern, in Eastern culture, if you were identified as a son, you were being connected to the home. You were being connected to, to an identity. What Jesus is saying here is you will be sons of God. You'll be connected to his identity if you'll be what? If you'll be a peacemaker. Peacemakers actually receive special honor because they participate in the same mission as Christ by sharing the gospel actually with those who are lost. Now listen, souls without Christ are at war with God. Let me say that again. Souls without Christ are at war with God. Yours and my job is to bring peace to that moment. The Bible describes the unsaved as enemies of God, the children of wrath. And Jesus didn't say, hey, I'm going to bring this political answer that will solve everything. Actually, what he said is he said, I will be the prince of peace. I will be the one that will calm their spirits. I will be the one that will speak over the storm and say, you know, be still. I love what someone once said. They said this, peacemakers are those who build bridges with wood from an old rugged cross. Peacemakers are those who build bridges from wood from an old rugged cross. The last character that we're going to read about is this. And it's probably one of the most unlikely because it actually is the persecuted follower. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others rival you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, people possessing these qualities would naturally stand out in a crowd. In fact, maybe even others wouldn't even understand them. And maybe that's why it's hard for you, because you want everyone to understand you and understand what's changed in your life. But the reality of it is, is apart from Christ, they can't. You see, the things of the Lord to them are like foolishness. So stop trying to think that they'll understand who it is. Just share your story about what God has done. Be a peacemaker. Be one who all throughout these different things understands and, and begins saying, blessed are these who do these things. And look at this passage of Scripture and begin looking through this week and saying, okay, God, how can I, how can I be more like that? See, Jesus' word actually encourage his followers and they encourage us today he's encouraging us listen yes there'll be persecution and can i just say it will get tougher it's not going to get easier because when you begin telling people around you that jesus is the only way they're going to look at you and they're going to say see you're a closed-minded bigoted person it's going to get tougher it's not going to get easier they're not going to be like oh you think there's only one way to heaven Oh, okay. No, one's gonna, no, they're going to start persecuting you. You will not be liked among others. And what happens many times is we often confuse blessing and reward. See, divine rewards actually come later. That's when they're actually promised. Some of you may have to walk through some really hard seasons. And you may say, man, I just, I thought God was faithful and it feels like I'm walking through this season and he's not being faithful. Can I just say, no, he is faithful. Because what he tells us is, is he will walk through any and every season. See, God doesn't just walk through you and or doesn't walk alongside you just when things are good. He actually walks alongside you when things are bad. You know what I love is I love, I love watching people who get bad reports from the Lord. I mean, from, from doctors and stuff. Not from the Lord. <laughs> Let me clarify. <laughs> I love watching people, especially followers of Jesus, because here, here's what you'll see. You'll actually see where their relationship with the Lord is. So I didn't get permission. I'm sorry, but I'm going to use her. 
So Rita. Rita got a doctor's report here a while back that wasn't actually one of the best reports. But you know what I love is I w love watching a woman of faith walk through a bad report because what she's consistently said throughout it is, God's still faithful. I I've, I've heard her even say things like, listen, if he didn't heal me here on earth, it's all right because I'm going to heaven. You know why you can have that type of confidence? Is because you have a deep understanding of who God is. Blessed. 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 Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning, if you would. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it changes our hearts and our lives. We thank you that it's living, that it's active, that it's a part of who we are. Father, I pray that today, God, your word would not return void. That today, God, your word would actually cause something to shift inside of us. Cause something to shift inside of us. God, inspire us with your word. Inspire us with your teaching. Inspire us with a deeper understanding of who you are. Heads bowed and eyes closed all across the room. I want to ask a real simple question today. Where are you at with God? Because listen, wherever you're at with God's okay. But just don't stay where you're at. Take the next step. Listen, if you find yourself far from God, then take the next step. Just ask him to be Lord of your life, to be your best friend, to forgive you. He's already calling you his son, his daughter. The question is, is will you allow yourself to be adopted into the family? It's a free choice he's given you today. Maybe today you find yourself, you've been serving Jesus for quite some time. But maybe, even as I was sharing today, one of these Beatitudes jumped out at you and the Holy Spirit, like an alarm sent off inside of you and said, man, this one right here, you've got to work on this one. And today you're sitting there and you're going, man, I just, I don't even know what, how to even take that next step. Can I just encourage you with something right now? Just ask him. Just say, God, what, what's that next step I could take? Just ask him. Ask him to help you take one step closer today. Ask him to help you take a step in your marriage. Come on, ask him to help you take a step as, as a father. Help him, ask him to help you take a step as a mother, as a grandparent. How about just a follower of Jesus? Just... God, help me today to take one step closer to you as a follower.